book of Exodus, open up there, chapter 1. This is, this is such an important book in the timeline of, uh, uh, of Scripture, in the covenantal history of Scripture, in what we see. In the book of Exodus, second book in your Bible, in case you're, you're new to your Bibles, uh, uh, in the book of Exodus, we see the covenant people of God called Israel, they basically, they gain their identity because they, in these first few verses that we'll look at today, they become a nation numerically. They grow out and they become a nation. And then in the book of Exodus, they gain their identity. Like they become that nation that was saved from Egypt's slavery by the hand of God's mighty right arm. So it, it comes to define them. It also comes to start defining God himself. For the rest of the Old Testament covenantal history between God and Israel, he will remind them over and over again, I am God, I am Yahweh, and I am the God who rescued you from Egypt and brought you up out of slavery. It becomes this definitional event that, that, that defines all of the rest of the relationship between God and Israel. It also starts to, uh, it's in this book where we first hear the, the covenant name of God, Yahweh, spoken explicitly to his covenant people starting in Moses. And in, in Exodus, what we also see is a preparation and a building for what becomes the gospel in the new covenant of Jesus Christ. We're, we're going to see application for ourselves today. We're going to see how the, this book of Exodus, which is from the ancient world, written down by Moses, a, a very old book. We're still going to see in it today, surprising though it may be, that it has application for us, how we think about our world, and especially how we think about our salvation, our exodus from sin through the blood of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. But in, in the book of Exodus, we see some things that are historically preparatory for the gospel. I'm going to explain that. By historically preparatory, we mean things that God does in history, getting the world ready for the time which is called the fullness of time in the New Testament when he finally, and, 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 and at the end of the ages, does send Jesus Christ. There's things that has to happen. He has to create Israel. He has to give them laws. He has to show them certain things. And then the, 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 the time is ready. The, the world is fully baked, in other words, for Jesus to step onto the scene. But in other ways, we're going to use language of foreshadowing or typology or analogical kind of things that are analogies and foreshadows and types of Jesus Christ. In other words, you look at the book of Exodus and you see something happen and you go, that, that looks exactly like what happens in the gospel. And friends, that wasn't accidental. Moses didn't have it in mind. God had it in mind as he was writing through Moses in such a way that would point forward to the greater leader, Jesus Christ, to come and rescue our, his people from sin. As, as we look at the lamb, it points forward to Jesus' blood being shed for us. As we look at the tabernacle, it's Jesus that becomes for us in and through his people, the church especially, the mediated presence of God in this sinful world. It's a glorious book. It's amazing. It is jam-packed, and I trust that by now you're in chapter 1 because we're going to start reading and do the whole of chapter 1 this morning. <clears throat> Don't look at me like that. Don't look at me. Whenever I say I'm going to preach a whole chapter, I get a sneaky look from James that says, no, you're not. We're going to be here till lunch tomorrow. I can't promise you. For some of you, this will be like the, the years in the promised land. For others of you, it will feel like the wandering in the wilderness. And for some, it will be like slavery in Egypt. <laughs> Can to get those doors locked? Thank you very much. Exodus chapter 1. This is the word of the only true living 
God, as his spirit had Moses write it down during and after the events therein. It reads like this. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. And then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. And now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and, uh, uh, and, and if war breaks out, they join the enemies and fight against us and overcome the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. And then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, when you serve as midwives to the Hebrew women and you see them on the birthing stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, you let him live. Let her live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And why have you let the male children live? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like those Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives come to them. So God dwelt, dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. May God bless his own powerful and inerrant authoritative word in our midst this morning. We have so much to cover by way of uh, 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 truth here in this powerful, well-told story that is Exodus 1. We need to first ground ourselves in the fact that while a, a beautifully told story, a well-delivered narrative, it is, and even though there's so much theological truth to apply from this, we're going to be doing no such spiritualizing of the matters of the book of Exodus in such a way that removes it from true History. The Bible is inerrant and true, authoritative in everything that it declares. So just because you can pick up 90% of the books at uh, your local Christian bookshop and almost all of the ones on Exodus will tell you that this is historically inaccurate, but that's okay because we still love Jesus, throw them away, or at least what they say in that much. This is true, inerrant History given by the hand of God. And if you care to look into it, the more we dig up and find out, the more the history finds itself agreeing with what the Bible says. It's not history I have a problem with. It's those darned 
historians, okay? It's not the science I have a problem with, it's those darned scientists. But here we are, the book of Exodus is true history, and as it picks up, it's picking up in the middle of the story. We start in verse 1, and it says here, the book, uh, uh, sorry, the, these are the names of the sons of Israel. We're already in this middle of a story that God has been writing and developing with his dealings with one family that would become to be known as Israel. So just for some context, the book of Genesis is one book, first book in the Bible, and its history, the, the story that it tells in that one book, the first book in the Bible, has already encapsulated half of the Old Testament history. So from Adam until Joseph, you've got about 2,000 years encapsulated in the book of Genesis. It is an enormous, unraveling story from creation onwards. And so by the time we get to Exodus, we're 1,500 years away from Jesus. And we are 2,000 years or so or more, 2,500 years, or maybe, maybe, maybe a bit stretched more since the creation of Adam in the garden and his fall. So, so we're right there. But if you, if you just compare the first two books, the beginnings of the first two books of the Bible, Genesis 1, how does that start? And Exodus 1, how does that start? You'll just find they're worlds apart. There has been so much happen in developing the story from God created the heavens and the earth, and the world was without form and covered in water, and it was empty, and this ho- the Spirit of God was hovering over the water. That's how Genesis 1 starts. And then by the time we get to Exodus 1, we've got civilizations, we've got inventions, we've got different ethnicities. There's been a whole geographically destructive deluge of the flood through Noah. We've got rise and fall of kingdoms. We've got families, weaponry, wars, politics, culture, everything. We're in a, we're in a very distant world from Genesis 1 to Exodus 1. And we're in a very distant world from Exodus 1 and 2023, of course. But here we are, back in... Exodus chapter 1, and one of the most important people in the book of Genesis is the forefather of the Israelites, Abraham. And so God had visited this pagan, uh, idol-worshipping man in the land of Ur, and he grabs him and he pulls him out and he says, I'm going to make you into a nation. You're old and you're barren, you have no children, but you and your wife are going to have children that become children. And he says, there's going to be a whole nation come out of you, and you're going to be powerful. I'm going to give you a land area in this this beautiful area called Canaan. You're going to have that. You're going to have a nation of people. And through that people in that nation, eventually, I will bless the whole world. And, of course, there's the threefold covenant between God and Abraham. I'll make you a people. I'll give you a land. And through your race will come the Messiah. That's what was promised to Abraham. And eventually he has Isaac. Isaac then has twins. And one of those twins is Jacob, whose name ends up getting changed to uh, Israel. And it's Israel who has 12 sons. And it's those 12 sons that then become the the household heads or the, the beginning of the tribes of Israel. So if you've ever heard of the 12 tribes of Israel, that's where it comes from, the 12 sons of Israel, who then became families and clans and tribes and enormous people groups. That's, that's where we land. But before those 12 men have their children, they have uh, one of the brothers is named Joseph. He's the guy with the multicolored coat back when rainbows were good things uh, and, the, and the godly people waved him around. Anyway, so Joseph was given a cloak and he had prophecies about his brothers all bowing down to him and them all serving him and 
Lo and behold, they hated him. Go figure that out. And so his brothers, his 11 brothers, sold him as a slave to whoever was passing by, told their dad, Israel, that he was dead. That's how much he hated, just in case you're a younger sibling. Take note. I would, I would bet that your siblings are not more godly than these guys anyway. Uh, uh, and so he's sold off, and there he's, he goes to, to Egypt as a servant, but providentially by God's hand, he's serving in the house of a very high officer. Time goes by and he's wrongly imprisoned and then released again into the courts of Pharaoh. And the Pharaoh utilizes Joseph's prophetic spiritual wisdom to foresee that a famine is coming that will destroy the whole land. And so Mo, uh, 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 the Pharaoh, with help of Joseph, uh, rule Egypt. And Pharaoh basically just kicks back and says, Joseph, it's yours. The only thing you can't have in all the land is my chair that's for me, you do everything else. And so he was the prime minister of all of Egypt, this, this son of uh, uh, Israel. And he doesn't know anything about his family, but he's just here laboring to keep his, his people's stores up and keeping them alive in the midst of famine. And eventually, 11 Hebrew boys come to his front door and start knocking and saying, our family, my father's dying, our family's poor, can we come and live in Egypt? You guys were, were wise enough to, to store up stores for the famine. And here's Joseph, recognizing his brothers, bowed down to him. Man, if that's not an I told you so moment right there, I don't know what is. And so he, uh, he tricks him a little bit, but eventually he accepts the whole of his family and his father that he had not seen for so long, Israel. They came down, and this is what the first few verses of our book this morning in Exodus told us. The, the Israel and his sons all went down into Egypt. This is the last few chapters of the book of Genesis. And they settled there, and the, the Pharaoh gave to the family of Joseph the most beautiful land called Goshen. It was plentiful. They had lambs. They had all that they needed, about 70 people all in all, and their youngest brother was ruling on the throne. Eventually, Joseph would die at the age of 110. Verse uh, 6 here tells us Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. Uh, we're told in Genesis 50 he was old enough to see his great-great-grandchildren. Okay, 110 years old, great-great-grandchildren, he sees. So they are multiplying, they are growing, and that, that shows us the, the next part of the story that starts unfolding in verse 7. <clears throat> and in verse 7, we read this. Uh, uh, so that sort of answers the question for us already. How did we get to Egypt? This, this is not Abraham's promised land. This is not what Abraham was promised to be in Canaan. Well, what, what's the story that identifies the people of God and introduces God to his nation? What's this story doing starting in Egypt? That's the wrong setting. Well, we got here through the acts of the forefathers, and so here we are. But secondly, we start asking the question, how did these people become slaves? Because that didn't seem to be a part of the promise and the covenant and the blessings either. So let's start asking that question. How did they become slaves? And we see the, uh, 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 the beginning uh, start to unfold in Verse 6, that Joseph is dead, the prime minister. These Hebrews, the Jews, the sons of Abraham, this, this growing people group out on the lands of Goshen, they no longer have a friend in high places. But it says, verse 7, the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. This is, this is going to start off for us or continue on for us one of the very key biblical themes throughout the Bible, and that is 
the lineage of God's children, the righteous line, and the warfare they have with the devil's children or the seed of the serpent. You remember when God cursed Satan after the fall and he said the, the, the seed of the woman, the righteous line, is going to be in enmity with the, the unrighteous line. Those who, those who serve you, the serpent, the serpentine blood type. And ultimately he was saying that there will be one from her who takes on the serpent and crushes his head, though it costs him his own blood. Nonetheless, we see this start unfolding here. The, the children of Israel start growing and Every word that could have been used was used here. There's five phrases that are trying to tell you they made heaps of babies. They were, they were good, reformed Baptist, Presbyterian types. That's what they were, homeschoolers and everything. I had 12 of them. They were all named after people in the Old Testament because they were all old people in the Old Testament. But the joke goes on. Uh, <coughs> and it says that, look at the phrases. They were fruitful and they increased greatly. And they multiplied, and they grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Five different phrases saying, in other words, they obeyed God's command. Did you know that it is God's command to every generation to make lots of babies and fill the earth with them? They knew what we're supposed to know, which Adam was told, and Noah was then reminded as well by God, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. The earth is made for us, not us for the earth. The earth is God's gift to us to be nurtured and grown and utilized. We are not God's gift to the earth to keep it and preserve it and uh, write love songs about it. They filled the earth as God had commanded them. Humans, you need to think of this, kids, noisy as they are, right? Children, annoying as you might find them. Uh, teenagers, I won't say anything about them. Uh, young adults, whatever, your neighbor that you don't like, wherever you see a human being, you are seeing a an infinitely valuable being. You're seeing something that bears the image of the creator God, and therefore more people is always good. There's more images of God in the world to glorify him. And so they were being fruitful and multiplying, as was actually specifically promised to Abraham. So the whole human race has been commanded, be fruitful. But Abraham was specifically in his unfruitfulness, because he couldn't have a baby. He was specifically promised that God would make him a nation. And so as Israel was multiplying, we're seeing God's faithfulness leak through here. Genesis 12, verse 1, God spoke to Abraham and said, I will make you a great nation. In Genesis 15, verse 5, he says, Look towards the heaven, count the stars if you can. And then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. So here they are in their obedience to God's command and God in his faithfulness to Israel, they start multiplying like rabbits. But the serpent hates God's blessings. This is so obvious to see from scripture and I'm sure you're an experience. The, the serpent, the line of the serpent, that, that Pharaoh symbolized by the great cobra, he, he hates God's blessings. This is just a, a simple fact that the more God blesses you, the more you will find that the world is turned in cursing and hatred towards you. Joseph knew this. The more he had been blessed by God and his father, the more his evil brothers hated him. Jesus knew this. The more of the blessing that he had on his life and in his obedience, the more the people around him hated him. We ought to know this. The more God blesses in his unique and sovereign ways, don't hear riches here, but the more God smiles upon us and blesses us and grows us and saves souls, the more the serpent will rear its head to strike, And so we see Pharaoh doing exactly this. Look at verse 8. The new king over Egypt did not know Joseph. In other words, he was not friendly towards 
what is now a threat to him, the growing, the growing race of the Jews in his own backyard. He didn't see them as image bearers. He saw them as a problem, an overpopulation problem, a threat. Verse 9 says, Behold, the people of Israel are too many, too mighty. Verse 10, Let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they join our enemies and fight against us and overcome the land. Your version might say, escape the land. I think the more faithful interpretation is overwhelm or flow out over or overtake the land. <clears throat> the son of the serpent, the Pharaoh here, the, the evil, uh, I mean, he's the bad guy of the story. He does exactly what his father did to our first father, Adam. He saw a problem. He, he saw that humanity flourishing. He saw God's promises coming true in a land that was bountiful. And he said, that's a problem. Let me deal cunningly and shrewdly. That is through lies and underhanded ways of speaking and broken vows and false contracts. Let's bring these people under our own subjection by dealing shrewdly with them. Just like Cain had done to his brother Abel to kill him. Just as Joseph had had done to him by his brothers in their attempt to get rid of him, the son of the serpent looks at the people of God and begins to deal shrewdly with them through lies, cunning. Uh, they, the, 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 the people who were, there were some who were agreeable to the tyranny. You know, it, it, it was therapeutic tyranny. Therapeutic totalitarianism. They stepped on the scene. They said to the Jews, you know, you, you could probably deal with some extra roads Maybe a couple of managers, the government will produce that. What did Ronald Reagan say is the nine most scary words in the English language? I'm from the government and I'm here to help. That's what they did. They just stepped in. They were shrewd. They were cunning. It was the most agreeable, Jacinta Arden-typed totalitarianism that you can imagine. I'm just taking swings today, okay? Uh, they came in. They were, they were happy. They were cunning. They were shrewd. They were, they were, and if you stood up and sort of uh, cried, uh, uh, cr cried foul and says, we don't need this uh, oversight, thank you. We prefer freedom. Then the Goshen Coalition went and wrote an article and sort of just said how you were, you were not reading or obeying, say, 2 Peter 2 or Romans 13, and, the, and that the government is to be trusted and loved and, and knelt to. That's, that was the mindset. We don't know what, what occurred, but somehow the Egyptians and the Pharaoh and his bureaucracy was able to step in and bring them under their authority and their control to then inch further into slavery. <clears throat> they became slaves now for another nation, moving, it seems, further and further away from God's plan of blessing. Instead of being productive for their own, they were now being utilized for the other nation. The aim here, remember, of the Pharaoh, the aim was not control. It was more severe and malicious than that. It was population control. He didn't just want the power. He wanted the power to kill and wipe out his enemies as he saw fit. So look at verse 11. They begin this slow death campaign against the Jews. Verse 11, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. And so they built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. In other words, you're seeing the, the contrast. They're being afflicted, malnourished, abused, oppressed, starved, overworked. Pharaoh is saving up. He's storing up. He's blessing himself and his own people. The men here was going through malnutrition. That, that his, uh, his aim was 
population control. Kill the men through working them so hard, beating them so hard, they're not eating properly, they're no longer independent, but they're only feeding them what the they're only feeding themselves what the government gives them in their handouts, okay? They're, they're weak, malnourished, working hard, afflicted, therefore killed on the job site. But it does go further than that. Because while the men are away now, the, the, the Hebrew people were shepherds and farmers. That's why they were given the land of Goshen. As the fathers were taken out, as the young men were taken out, now the mothers with their children need to somehow do both. Mother children or work the land or try and do both. But regardless, you've you got to see the, the equation work out that something's got to lose. Either you stop having as many kids or they die or you stop tilling the ground and then you all die. Regardless, there will be less children, there will be uh, 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 less lives, they will begin dying. But verse 12 says, But the more they oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. I have to see here that they're not just keeping up with the status quo. They're not just keeping up with, uh, with the, the numbers as it was pre-slavery. They're, they are at least replacing everybody dying in slavery. And they are making enough babies now that they are growing. You've got to throw in there somewhere the fact that they're making enough people to work the ground to feed all of the extra people. I mean, they just keep on spreading. I think we can conclude from this that the guy who came up with this whole policy about work them harder and they'll stop making babies was either a woman or a white-collar suit-wearing type, or a eunuch. It was not a blue-collar dude. Because you know how blue-collar dudes work? It's verse 12. If you get home from work, tired and worn out, it's only one thing you want to do. And it's not an early bedtime. Watching VeggieTales, let me tell you that. The guys come home, tired, and the tireder they are, well, nine months later, there's just always more babies popping around. I'll let you fill in the gaps. It's, it's, it's that the, these guys are, these are functional guys, blue collar, ancient world guys. They come home, they go, that work was hard. It will be easier with more of us. I know how to make more of us. Ergo, more babies, more sons, and they kept on growing. So, so the more they are pregnant, now you can see how annoying this is to the Egyptians, these frustrated Egyptians trying to kill them off, and they just keep on making their babies. And verse 13 and 14 say they respond with greater affliction. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. The emphasis here is on the increasing difficulty of the labor. They made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick, in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. The Pharaoh here took upon himself the all too common progression into tyranny. First of all, his step was number one, bureaucracy. I'm from the government. I'm here to help. Give over some of your independence towards me. Next, secondly, was the total removal of independence and freedom. You will have what the government gives to you. You will be slaves according to our wages. You will have no freedom to do elsewise. Everything highly regulated by the government and all-out slavery. Thirdly, he attempted to destroy the patriarchy. That is, that he tried to dehumanize the leading men in that nation. Every historian that you ever read with any sense will tell you that the key marker for 
for success and productivity and growth in a people group is the presence of fathers there to carry on the teaching, carry on the culture, to embody strength in that nation, to physically defend as needed, to bring in economical wealth into that people group. And the, the Pharaoh just knew this. He didn't have our modern sensibilities. Right? No one stood up in his little boardroom and said, it's a little unfair that you assume the men will be able to work harder than the women. Or it's a little, uh, we don't really have a, a representation of the women on the board of who we should be killing. I feel like that's probably, now he just knew, lose the men, destroy the patriarchy, you'll lose the, the, the men to raise men. You'll, lose, you'll, you'll effeminize the young boys. You'll, you'll embarrass the old men who should be getting honor. Instead of, instead of being honored, they're now being whipped and driven into the ground and spat upon and mistreated, destroying God's good design of male leadership. So, so beautifully connected to the next thing the Pharaoh was attacking, which was the nuclear family. Father, out of the home, away from the land, into the slavery. Mother, uh, 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 struggling under oppression by herself without the support. In all these ways, the, uh, the, the, the Pharaoh was, he was simply writing the book on this tyranny stuff. Bureaucracy, removing independence and freedom, slavery, destroy the patriarchy, dismantle the nuclear family, and then politicize and weaponize the health system. It sounds like a textbook from 1930s Germany, you're not wrong. Uh, uh, politicize and then weaponize the health system. Look at what happens next in verse 15. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, these would have been the, the two leading women over what would have been an army of midwives among this many people. The midwives were often women who were barren in themselves, able to be there with the women as a woman, but not, able to, not having to be, look after their own children, free and able to, able to uh, run to and fro from houses at all hours of the night, helping look after the pregnant and the babies. So these, uh, these women, you'll notice, are the only people named in this entire drama. Other than the patriarchs, the Pharaoh, the most strong, powerful uh, uh, man over the strongest superpower the world has ever seen, he's always just the Pharaoh, the king, the people, the Israelites. But these midwives in Hebrew literature, this is introducing a hero. Here are their names. They're being introduced here by name to show you that this, this war was, was won by faithful women. Look at their names. Shifra and the other, Puah. I, there's there's going to be a hundred pronunciations of them. Pick one. But these ladies become the heroes of what we see next. And so Pharaoh brings them in. I'm sure he gave them a great lunch, put before them a tremendous uh, uh, financial package for their obedience. And he said to them, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on their birthing stool, the English comes out a bit odd. It could otherwise be translated and see the nether regions of the child. In other words, this birthing stool stuff has no historical basis. It's just, it's how the words could otherwise be translated. But, but what it looks like, it's really, he's saying, is when you're, when you're helping them give birth and you see that it is a boy, kill them there. I think sometimes we, we assimilate what happens now and what happens next. This stage was secret, private, undercover murder. That's what was being, being, being brought forward. The midwives were not, were not told, march in, find the children, kill them. They were not told, go in with a blade and threaten the mother and kill They'd never be invited back as a midwife. What he was being told here was, fake or mirror stillbirths. As you're, just think of what he's asking them to do. 
As you're helping give life to a child, as you see that it is a boy, you smother them, you strangle them, you drop them, you cut them, you do what you need to do, but you, you mirror, you fake a, 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 an epidemic of Hebrew stillbirths. That's what he's asking them to do. Obviously, whenever you're asked anything by the Pharaoh, it doesn't have to be said or written down. It's on the pain of death. Do this or you die. And these women, who we know as heroes because they're named, are told to do this. And what is their response to this serpentine method of warfare against God and his people? This supporter and this uh, this promoter of abortion, this one who commissions the women to kill the children, the very thing the women are put on earth to do the opposite of. What do they do? Look at verse 17. I'll tell you what. They didn't read the articles from the Goshen Coalition. They didn't go and read Romans 13 and come away and assume, oh, I get it. We say, yes, sir, thank you, sir, to whatever the government says. No, no, they come away and they feared God. Verse 17, but the midwives feared God. And what does that mean most of the time in the world, especially as the serpentine tyranny comes to consume the children of God, especially as we see the history unfold in the Old Testament for the Jews? What does it usually mean? When you fear God, you do not do as the kings command you to do. That's usually what it looks like in an evil age and an evil generation as they found themselves in. And so they did not... Do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but they let the male children live. This was intentional. This was on purpose. They told to their underlings what the king had commanded and then told them how we're going to go about this. And over the years, they developed quite a story. This story, you have to realize, from the beginning of when Joseph died and a king came who didn't know Joseph, and then when Moses is born, there's about 400 years here. A lot of this time is, is going on in between the lines that we're reading in this story. And just think about it. that The Pharaoh put something in place by way of policy to limit the amount of children being born. You have to have at least 10 years or so to be able to recount and relook around and measure up whether or not your plans were working. And so he afflicts them harder, and then he sees again, they're still growing and having just as many babies. So this is years and years and years, likely handed down onto the next pharaoh and the next pharaoh and the next pharaoh, each being more intense and each trying to, to be a, 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 a more stringent in the policy than the last. And we get to this point, we don't know which pharaoh it is and what, whether it's the same pharaoh that told the midwives this, but I, I think it was. He calls them in and says, you know, you, you are not abiding by the terms of the commandment that I gave to you. He called the midwives, verse 18. Some, enough time had passed for him to be able to see that there's just as many five-year-old boys as there are five-year-old girls running around as I go and look over Goshen. He called the midwives and said to them, why have you not done this? And why have you let the male children live? Now, remember, these ladies, these are the heroes of the story. I want you to see here, not a, not a timid lie that they're trying to tell. They are going to be giving us an example of righteous commendable deception of boldness of gutsiness and just a hint of some hebrew sass okay here's their first answer it's it's not even necessary they could have lied without this but they just throw it in because they have that glorious sass about them look what they say verse 19 well the hebrew midwife said to pharaoh 
Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. They're vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. They didn't have to compare the Egyptian women. They didn't have to say any of that, you know? But what it's coming across is, uh, to Pharaoh is this kind of backhanded slap before they move on to, uh, uh, onto their full-blooded liars. Uh, your women are fat and lazy. Ours aren't. That's why. Like, this is the first recorded yo mama joke ever in all of history. Well, you Egyptian mamas, you, you're lying back, you got your epidural, you got your TV on, you got the pain meds, you're in a soft bed. But these Hebrew ladies, they're just popping them out left and then back to kneading the unleavened bread, okay? We are, we are just more gutsy and energetic and uh, that's the problem. I mean, do you want me to change nature, Pharaoh? What can I do? I love that that's there. Anybody that reads this knows that they're taking a, a risky shot here. They're... They're pushing back with just enough sass to show that uh, 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 don't call us in here and try and tell me what to do again. Now, I don't know why they didn't use that line. You're a man. You're going to try and tell me, a midwife, how to do my job. Have you ever seen a birth pharaoh? No, no, never. No, no, I'm sorry. Go back. Do what you want. I don't want to be there. <laughs> I'm not going to see it. Uh, this, um, I, I was thinking about this. It's funny. My, I did not ask permission to tell this story, and I will anyway. At the birth of my second son, uh, so you all know who I'm throwing under the bus here. <laughs> If verse 8, 19 is true, my wife's Hebrew. We, were, we went into the hospital and the, 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 the midwives did not have time to make the bed or administer the Panadol before I had caught my child from my standing wife and we had to kind of, I was lucky I watched WWE as a kid, fireman thrower onto the bed holding the football baby uh, still attached. She, were you in there? Not five minutes. I, I was going to go move the car. Then I thought, nah, I'll help her in bed first. And before she was in, there was our boy. Out. So, so it's not that this thing doesn't happen. Okay, those midwives, I almost rocked out this verse right at the ladies there in the mind. I go, you Egyptian lazy fat. No, I didn't though. I didn't because I was, I was a modern man. I was there in the birth room and I, I caught him. Uh, uh, I... I, I think I'm the hero of that story. Um, <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's how it'll go down. So look, look, it, they say that. Oh, they're just so quick. We can't get there. There's, there's no way that's true. Uh, uh, and what they go on to say, um, uh, yeah, they're giving birth before the midwives come to them. But all we need to see here is an outright intentional deception. So many people try and weasel our Christian ethics around this so as to navigate the hard waters. Friends, it's simple. God does not require and command an obedience to the law in order to enable an outright, explicit, bold-faced breaking of the law. Hitler's knocking on your door saying, are you hiding the Jews? The honorable answer is not, tell the truth and pray. It's no, none whatsoever. It's, it's a lie because if the person requiring you to tell the truth is whipping out the Ten Commandments going, you know, you should really be truthful so that I can slaughter and murder innocents... You are not by either the explicit commandments of the law, nor the spirit of the law, nor the love of the law that we see as the fulfillment required therein to tell the truth. However, before you go back and start trying to use this gentleman on whether you've paid the bills and use this young kids on whether or not you've unstacked the dishwasher, it is something for the extreme circumstances. Not an everyday action, yet they did this and what we see in the next verse, God commended them. Look at verse 20. So God dwelt well with the midwives because they, they kept the men alive 
And then they lied, and in doing so, protected the lives of all of the midwives beneath them, and protected the lives of the young boys, at least for a time. They did all that they could. God kept them alive. And then look at what else happens. The people multiplied and grew strong, verse 20. Again, God's still growing all of the people. But look at verse 21. And because the midwives feared God, he gave to them families. He opened the womb of what would have been mostly barren women who were in this role as midwives. God started doing miracles as a blessing for opposing tyranny. This is like 101, how to get by in the world opposing tyranny. Get married, have lots of babies, and say stuff you to the government whenever they're telling you to sin. That's, that's basically 101, thank you, Exodus chapter 1. But they did that. God commended them. He gave them children in this miraculous opening of the womb. And verse 22 just as the success and the victory looks like it is on the side of God's people, Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Let every daughter live. He moves into all-out genocide. Years have passed. He sees that his methods are not working. The methods of the previous Pharaohs are not working, and so he moves into outright genocide. He calls for a police state. No husband is allowed to deny the entry of a, of, of a uh, government agent into their home. They are allowed with unlimited warrants and totalitarianistic powers to go and search the houses, find the babies, and then go and throw them into the Nile, into the Nile in this genocidal, ethnic-based act of infanticide, what we call abortion. They throw them into the Nile, and there's a few clues there as, as, as to why. They throw the babies into the Nile, I think first and foremost, for the convenience of it. It was so convenient. It was, it was very clean. You, if you were killing babies out in the street, you'd, you'd have rivers of blood. And so they were throwing the babies into the Nile for the cleanliness and the convenience of it, for the very same reason as we have uh, uh, anesthetics and Medicare paid and closed doors and cleaned rooms and clinical uh, staff to kill our children through abortion. Convenient, clean. It was also hidden away. A man could throw a young child into the river and walk away without having to, to, to see quite the graphic scene himself. Just like when I, I used to do preaching at the front of an abortion clinic here in Brisbane and, and would preach to men and women as they brought their babies in and would have um, uh, amazing uh, conversations sometimes, horrendous stories, cops being called and all sorts of things. But, but one of the things that was, that, that was chilling was how as soon as we went inside, he said, his mind had been changed. The Spirit had worked a change on his heart. He wanted to both believe in Christ and save his baby that he'd just driven to be assassinated. And he said, though, I can't get to my, wife, my girlfriend. As soon as we went upstairs, the men went into one room, the woman went into the next, separated, keys locked, she was away, and they start giving her medication as soon as possible so as she cannot change her mind. Hidden away, out of sight, behind a pretty building with nice painting, no, no, no big abortion clinic sign, just family health planning. This is what we do as well. We kill children through convenient, clean, out of sight, out of mind ways. Just in case you got into the habit of thinking that this ancient book is telling us about some ancient evils of an ancient people. We are all serpentine in our blood. Our culture is the very same kind of culture, but by the grace of God. But furthermore, they were throwing it into the Nile because to them, the Nile was a god. 
The Nile brought them prosperity. The Nile brought them, brought them life and, and income and wealth and convenience. And it, it enabled their lifestyle. And so to them, it was a god. And, and by giving the baby to the god, they were, they were giving a sacrifice to their most, pl- their most prized possessions. And just in case you thought I'd stopped with the modern-day applications, is that not exactly what we see happen today? That our young are killed because we want to uphold our lifestyle We have this God called convenience and lifestyle and pets and third house and jet skis and and career and and my body that needs to stay in the same state and I don't want my wife's body to change and we're not ready yet and this is about us first and we want to travel the convenience, the gods that we worship and do anything to, we, we kill our children in order to acquire. Same people, same sin, same problem, but here unraveling in the story of God's redemption of his people. They were thrown into the God of the Nile. They were swallowed. They were drowned. They were killed, whatever happened. And there, chapter 1 ends before we see God's intervening power. But I want to ask another question as we close out. We've seen how they got to Egypt. Not the promised land, but they were there. We've seen how they became slaves and thirdly, I want to ask, how did God show himself faithful through all of this? Well, first, as we've been hitting, hitting so many times, the first sign that God was with them and blessing them and not far away was the numerical multiplication of the people because he had promised Genesis 12 verse 1, I will make you a great nation, Abraham. And therefore, whether it was through the slavery or whether it was through the, the drama with the midwives, God continued to protect them, continued to multiply them as he had promised his son, his chosen one, his covenant head, Abraham. God here was being faithful to his promises. But even, friends, even the slavery in Egypt is itself a fulfillment of God's own promise to Abraham. Did you know that God promised Abraham this? It says in Genesis 15, 13, Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain, that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and they will be servants there, and they will be afflicted there for 400 years. Even in the darkness of this scenery, what you're supposed to be seeing is that everything is going on exactly according to God's sovereign plan and according to his sovereign covenant promises. Just as Joseph said to his brothers when he saw them again, You meant this for evil. God meant it for good. So at every page of the book of Exodus, we need to remember that. They were meaning it serpentine as they were against the people of God for evil. But God was here using it all for good because of his covenant promises to Abraham whom he loved. And we can finalize with a few questions about ourselves. Like the Jews had to ask the question, how did we get here in a land, not our promised land? We also as humans have to ask this question, how did we get here in this sinful, this broken, this horrible world where all these sorts of things happen? Brothers murder brothers, betray brothers, sell them off, prefer financial gain to family loyalty, abortion, genocide, racism, government tyranny, all of these things. How did we get here? We are a people, this human race in a world that is much like Egypt, that is, that is evil from the ground up. It's everywhere. We, we witness it and we see it. And the question is, how did we get here? And just like the Jews answered that question by saying, well, our fathers 
uh, came down here, and it's because of our fathers that we are in this land, so also, spiritually, it is for us. We are here in this fallen world on the planet Earth because of our forefather, Adam, who in the Garden of Eden before God broke the promise, broke the commandment, broke the law of God, and therein received upon the earth all that was underneath him in terms of his rule and authority. The whole earth and every human after him would then be born in sin and misery in a cursed world. It's because of our fathers that we are in a land like Egypt. But secondly, how did we become slaves? And mark it, we are slaves. Born from our mother's womb, we are slaves to sin. Peter says, whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. Jesus said, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Paul said, you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. We are a people from the birth as humans who are, but maybe, maybe you're humanistic or secularistic or just not a Christian or you're a new Christian. You didn't know this, but this is what the Bible teaches, that every single one of us are born into a state of slavery, not to the state, not to Egypt, not to some Pharaoh, to sin. Sin is this, is this lawlessness, the unrighteousness, this rebellion against God that is just encasing your heart so that everything you feel, everything you do, and everything you say is a crime against God. It's your bent. It's your habit. It is, it is how you live, and that all is because of in Adam's curse. When he sinned and he was cursed, everyone after him was cursed to be given over to sin, over to Satan, to be ruled and dominated by that power such that none of us can ever bring ourselves out of that state into right standing with God. Let's ask the same third question. How has God showed himself faithful to us? Just like God had promised Abraham beforehand, your people are going to fall. Your people are going to be enslaved. Afterwards, I will save them. So also, the, the sum. The, the Son of God, God the Son, before time ever began to start ticking, the Father had promised him, you're going to save a people. You're going to have a bride. You're going to have a covenant people in heaven, in glory, forevermore. But first, we will create them. They will fall. They will be enslaved. They will be tyrannized, oppressed, and afflicted. And it will be on your shoulders to go and save them and bring them up out of that slavery into relationship with me. This is the good news of the gospel. That, that what Exodus is foreshadowing is a time that when Jesus Christ himself would be God in human flesh, come to the earth to take onto his shoulders our sin, to take onto his account our own guilt, so that in his death and in his resurrection, there is our legal substitution. Your sins are paid for in Jesus. Your eternal life is in Jesus. And by faith, and faith alone, if you believe in him, reject your own attempts to be righteous. Reject your own attempts to work yourself out of slavery to sin. No therapy, no humanistic ideologies, no, no, no lifestyle. Nothing can get you out of the bondage of sin except Christ. And in his blood, there is power to rescue you, forgive you, cleanse you, and take you to heaven. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this ancient, ancient text about this, this ancient world that is so, so familiar. Mankind has not changed. 
Our, our, our evil in our hearts has not actually changed. Our, our ability to, to create evil cultures that, that turn against you has not changed. Our tyrannical bent inside of us to take control and abuse and, 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 and oppress other people for our own gain, that has not changed. The only thing that has changed is that you have come into this world by your grace and you have given us your Holy Spirit. You have made us born again, those who belong to you. And yet, Lord, we live now in a world, in a, in a present evil age, in a world that is still largely under darkness. Your light has broken in, but has not yet finished taking over this planet. Lord God, we recognize all of this is true, as your, as your word tells us. We are fallen, but we are redeemed by your grace. We are slave to sin, but you free us by the blood of Jesus Christ. But God, there are those here still today who would deny their inward sinfulness, who would turn away from the Bible's truth that they are guilty, who would, who would spurn the idea of their own condemnation, who believe themselves to be good. And I pray, Lord God, that your spirit would tell them otherwise, would convince them that they are miserable sinners, guilty, vile, and helpless before God, and that their only hope at being righteous, their only hope at being accepted by you is the sheer grace of forgiving power, that doesn't make them do anything, but simply forgives them in Jesus, who receives them in Jesus, and who promises to have them with you forevermore. God, please convince those hearts of that. And those of us who know you, may we be thankful that we are not in the age of shadow, in the age of Abraham's covenant, in the age of Israel, but we have the blessing of being this side of the cross. And we can behold our redemption not as something far off, but as something so clear in the gospel. May each of us cherish it and seek to live lives uh, uh, in view and in worthy ways of it. Father God, we pray all of this in the name of your glorious Son, our Redeemer and Mediator, Jesus Christ. And everybody said, Amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.